Was Robert Heinlein actually a socialist? Would he have been a fan of Andrew Yang? Will I finally start talking about something other than Robert Heinlein? Coming up on Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey there, and welcome to the last of the Heinlein episodes. For now, at least. I make no promises that I won't become obsessed with Heinlein a year from now and start talking about it more. But at least for now, this wraps up the Heinlein series, and then we can move on to new things. But for this week, to wrap up the politics of Robert Heinlein, we're talking about, for us the living, a comedy of customs. This novel has the distinction of being the first novel, as far as we know, Heinlein wrote, and also being the last of his work that was published. He wrote it in 1938 when he was just starting out as a writer, and it was not published until 2003 after he had died. The manuscript was found, I think, in somebody's garage, and it was fortunately brought to light and published, and his fans were able to experience Heinlein's first attempt at writing science fiction. So let's talk about the background of this novel. So again, this is the first book that Heinlein wrote. He wrote For Us the Living in 1938, years before he would write Starship Troopers or Stranger in a Strange Land. And when Heinlein wrote this book, it was about the time he was active in U.S. politics. This book was written at the same time Heinlein was working for the ultimately failed campaign of Upton Sinclair for governor of California. That would be Upton Sinclair, the writer probably most well-known for the book The Jungle, the 1906 novel famous for its descriptions of horrible, disgusting, unsanitary conditions in meatpacking plants and the food industry that ultimately shocked people and got the government to begin to introduce new regulations for the food and drug industries, and which would ultimately lead to the creation of the Government Bureau, which would one day evolve into the FDA. Interesting side note, while the jungle would have a significant impact on the American public and on politics over time, again, largely contributing to the birth of the FDA, Sinclair in his time was very disappointed with the response his book got. The government response to his book was not nearly what he was hoping for. He had been pushing for much more radical reform. He openly advocated for socialism, and he had intended his book to be a call to socialism. And when people generally missed the economic message of what he was saying, his attempts to say all these horrible conditions are the result of capitalism and we need fundamental economic and political change. And instead, people ignored that and just focused on the unsanitary conditions. He was incredibly disappointed, feeling that people had really missed the point. In fact, he was once quoted as saying about his book, I aimed at the public's heart and by accident I hit it in the stomach. But anyway, this is what was going on in Heinlein's life at the time. He was interested in the politics of Upton Sinclair. He was helping his campaign for governor. And while being immersed in more left-wing American politics, he was just starting out as a writer, trying to get his career going there. And here I'll acknowledge, while up until now, the past two episodes in the series, I've pushed the idea that Heinlein 
was consistent in his political philosophy. There wasn't a major shift in his political outlook. I will acknowledge we do seem to see him holding different beliefs at this time in his life. There does seem to be something of a shift here, going from 1938, campaigning for Upton Sinclair, writing for Us the Living, to the late 1950s into the 1960s, where we get Starship Troopers and Stranger in a Strange Land. There does seem to be a little bit of him being more solidly left-wing in the late 1930s and moving away from that. However, I still maintain there are consistencies in his political thought that we can find even as far back as For Us the Living. And these consistencies that we can pick out of this book will carry through into Stranger in a Strange Land and Starship Troopers. So while there is some shifting, I don't think it's as significant as some will make it out to be. But let's get into the book itself. What is For Us the Living about? The story is, in 1939, a man named Perry Nelson is driving down the road and has a car accident. He presumably dies, he's pronounced dead. However, in the year 2086, Perry Nelson suddenly wakes up, apparently in a new body. His soul, his spirit, had been asleep for over a century, and he starts walking through the snow. Sort of the standard Rip Van Winkle plot. A man goes to sleep, sleeps for an extended period of time, and wakes up to find the world change. Apart from the fact that he doesn't exactly go to sleep, he apparently dies, his soul jumps to a new body years and years later, but basic idea. Man goes to sleep, wakes up, and the world has changed. And as Perry Nelson, now in this new body, is walking through the snow, he's discovered by a woman named Diana, who takes him and begins to care for him, and teach him about the new world he's woken up into. And the rest of the book is essentially Nelson learning about this future society, learning about its culture, its politics, and falling in love. So that's the book. And very light on plot, very light on character development. I've basically given the entire story. Man has a car accident, wakes up in the future, learns about the society, begins to fit in, falls in love. That's pretty much it. Unlike Stranger in a Strange Land, which has sort of a very similar, basic, setup, fish-out-of-water character, learns about a new society, teaches the society about his culture, For Us the Living really doesn't try to develop a larger plot with character arcs, unlike in Stranger in a Strange Land, where characters acknowledge that what's happening is very fantastical and talk about the implications of it. No character in For Us the Living ever expresses any real shock or wonder at the fact that this man has seemingly reincarnated over a century later. Nelson begins to adapt very quickly to these changes in his life. He doesn't really express any sadness at the life he's left behind. It just kind of is. This man suddenly finds himself in the future and goes about the business of learning what that future is all about. And so clearly, this is a book that is much more interested in social and political commentary than telling an interesting story, and probably the sign of an author who is either just getting started in his writing career and learning how to write an interesting plot along with write political commentary, or it may, it may be the sign of an author who is in the middle of a rough draft that he abandoned and never went back to and finished filling out the characters and the plot. Or perhaps it's just the mark of a book by an author who at this time was really only interested in delivering political and social commentary and only later in his career became more interested in delivering these kinds of messages along with an interesting story in its own right. But for whatever reason, what we get in 
for us to living, a very bare bones plot. And in this sense, the bare bones plot, the idea of a man suddenly waking up in the future, the very left wing politics, all very reminiscent of another classic novel of political commentary, the book Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy which itself was a book published in 1887 and describes a man falling asleep, waking up in the year 2000 and finding the United States has been transformed into a socialist utopia. And the book is largely about this man learning about the society and how it works. And it's largely an attempt by the author Bellamy to advocate for his political agenda. So for us, the living very much in the vein of that. That's the basics. So let's get into the politics of For Us the Living. Let's talk about what might be perceived as the more solidly left-wing stuff. And arguably the left-wing stuff is the real core of the book. In For Us the Living, Heinlein describes a new United States which is politically and economically based on a variation of a social credit system. By the way, when I say social credit system, I mean a specific political economic system, not the social credit system that the Chinese government is currently in the process of implementing in China, which, in my opinion, is a scary totalitarian nightmare. This may come up in a later episode if I talk about totalitarianism and horrible Big Brother-style government spying in dystopia. Not the same thing we're talking about in Heinlein's book. In For Us the Living, the social credit system that Heinlein proposes is the idea of social credit as originally proposed in the 1920s by the British engineer C.H. Douglas. Now, this version of social credit is a proposed political economic system whereby the government takes over as the primary issuer of credit in the economy. This idea, again, first proposed in the 1920s, is based on a couple key premises. First, the assumption that the economy should, first and foremost, serve the welfare of and empower individuals. The idea is if the economy isn't working in such a way that all people are empowered and have their welfare being served by this system, then it's a failed system. And two, the other core assumption is that a key part of any economy is a society's, what we could call, cultural inheritance. In other words, a large part of what makes production possible, a large part of what makes an economy run, a large part of what gives us all the economic activity, all the stuff we produce today, is a result of the technological progress that has happened over the course of millennia. This was kind of the big idea that C.H. Douglas developed. And the idea is this. While economists will say that there are three key factors of production, three major elements that go into things being produced in a society, these being land, labor, and capital. In other words, the land that we use to build stuff on and the resources that come out of the land, the labor, the actual labor that human beings put into producing things, and the capital, the money that gets invested to build the factories, to build up the businesses. An economy takes these factors of production, brings all these things in as inputs, and outputs all the stuff that we get in an economy. The idea of social credit and its founder, C.H. Douglas, argued there's another factor of production, and that is technology and know-how. That the economy functions the way it does. We are able to produce the amazing things that we're able to produce, not just because of land, labor, and capital, but because there is technological know-how that no living person played any part in, that we are all commonly, as human beings, inheritors of. 
In other words, we're able to farm so much, not just because people have land and people work the land as farmers, but because millennia ago, some ancient human being figured out how to rotate crops. And before that, someone figured out that you pour water on crops, they grow. A person long dead invented the cotton gin, invented the printing press. Some ancient, brilliant human being in our long forgotten past invented the wheel. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel every generation. Every generation, we build on this technological know-how. So our economy grows and grows, not just because of the stuff we in the present put into it, but because of the stuff that human beings figured out millennia ago. And so advocates of a social credit system say, look, a big part of the economy is this, is this stuff that our ancient ancestors figured out. And we as human beings, every single one of us, we are all in common beneficiaries of this past progress and inheritors of this progress. And as such, we should all in common benefit from what is produced as a result of these technological advancements. And the argument goes, the economy will work better if we are all getting a piece of these technological advancements. Those are sort of the core philosophical ideas behind the social credit system. And so in theory, the way a social credit system should work is a government agency is created with the job of issuing credit, debt-free credit to everybody in the country. And this credit sort of represents what's being paid out to everybody as a representation of what we all are entitled to as common beneficiaries of everything that's being produced. All these things that are being produced are the result of the technological advancements that are our common heritage. So the government is going to kind of pay us back for all of this by issuing us credit. Now, in theory, much of this credit goes to the government paying directly to producers of goods to lower prices. The government issues credit and then uses that credit to pay off manufacturers, distributors, to lower the price of goods so we get everything for cheaper. And what is left over is issued debt-free equally to all members of the society. Again, all of us being equal inheritors of the progress that produce this credit. Now, important to note, this isn't socialist redistribution of wealth through taxation. Social credit advocates don't say we're going to tax the wealthy and then redistribute it equally among the people. The idea is the government is essentially issuing new money and just giving it out equally to everybody in the form of one, lowering prices, and two, just actually giving everybody access equally to this new credit being generated. And beyond the idea that the issuing of this credit, essentially printing new money, is going to pay back everybody for the technological progress that we are all beneficiaries of, the issuing of this credit is also going to help spur the economy and bring equilibrium to the economy. Another key assumption of C.H. Douglas was that production would always outstrip the ability of consumers to pay for things, that we'd always end up producing more than people could buy. So in other words, supply was always going to outpace demand. There would always be more available than people could, with the money available to them, buy. And this was going to be a drag on the economy. And so beyond giving everybody credit, which they are inheritors of, which they are entitled to, putting more money in the hands of everybody would allow people people to buy all the things that are available to them, bring equilibrium to the economy, make sure that supply and demand would sync up, and this would keep the economy moving forward, allow us to grow and expand more and more. So touching on Keynesian ideas here, John Maynard Keynes, the British economist who argued that a big part of spurring an economy when it's in a slump 
is promoting demand, pumping money into the economy, either by giving people money directly or the government buying up whatever surplus goods are not being bought. The idea being jumpstart the economy. The economy is sluggish because there's not enough demand. The government should create demand. So touching on very Keynesian ideas, the economy will hit a slump if there's not enough demand, if people aren't buying stuff. How do we fix that? Artificially create the demand. Pump money into the economy. That'll get the economy going again. People will start producing more as there's more demand and then they start hiring more and now unemployment ends and the economy starts going again. Touching on Keynesian ideas, but not quite Keynesian because Keynes argued that yes, when the economy is in a slump, we need to pump money into the economy. But Keynes argued we're going to do that by making sure the government has money available by taxing more when the economy is good. You tax money to take it out of the economy when things are going good. And then when things are bad, you pump that money back into the economy. C.H. Douglas, social credit advocates arguing, no, we're not going to take money out of the economy through taxing. We're just going to issue new credit. And this is going to keep us consistently, indefinitely on an upward path of growth. And so Heinlein, clearly very inspired by the idea of a social credit system, proposes a variation of it in For Us the Living. And very telling, by the way, that in Heinlein's version, the money being issued to people are called heritage checks. This is the name Heinlein adopts for his fictional system in For Us the Living, the heritage check system. Clearly a nod to the idea that the technological progress, the know-how that human beings have developed over millennia is something that we as human beings are all common inheritors of. It's our common heritage. In Heinlein's For Us the Living, Perry Nelson wakes up in a future where the United States has adopted a social credit system. And under this system, according to Heinlein, the government has been restructured such that a new agency has been created to print new money, essentially getting rid of the Federal Reserve. Heinlein arguing in the book that the Fed was too tied to private banks, too influenced by private interests. And so the solution was a new agency that is completely public, completely disconnected from private banks and their interests. And this new agency is in charge of printing money. And further, private banks in this future society have been banned from lending money they don't have. In other words, as opposed to what we have today, where banks have physical cash on hand, but they're able to loan out far more money than what they physically have. And there are laws saying what percentage of money you have to have on hand if you're a bank and how much more you're allowed to loan out. But this practice has been banned entirely in For Us the Living. Banks cannot loan out money they don't physically have to cover it. So the idea of issuing credit has basically been taken out of the private sector and only the government can really do this now. Further, this new government agency in charge of printing money always prints new money in a response to an expansion of production. Essentially, as the economy grows, as more is being produced, the government prints and issues more money to match that production. In other words, the goal is to ensure that there is always exactly enough money in the economy for people to buy everything that is being or has been produced. So production will always match the ability of consumers to buy. And as the government prints this new money, this is what it uses to fund itself. Rather than taxing people, as the government prints money, as the economy grows, it uses the money it prints to fund itself. And what is left over after the government funds itself is issued equally to all Americans in the form of 
heritage checks. Everybody gets a heritage check. I believe these are monthly checks in the book and people can do whatever they want with this money. And according to Heinlein, by the time we get to 2086, the economy has grown so much. There is so much production going on that the money being printed and being produced and given out in the form of these heritage checks has essentially become enough that every American is getting enough money every month to live a modest life on. These checks are enough to live on if you are unable to work in any other way. You're not going to live a lavish lifestyle, but it's enough for anyone to live on if they choose to or if they need to. And from there, it's just free market. People get this money, they can spend it how they want, they can choose to go out and get jobs to make more money. Businesses are built up. They produce things. They hire people. They build things. They sell things. They exchange things. The economy just works in a free market fashion. So that's the basic idea. And according to Heinlein, this system works because it creates stability in the economy, it promotes production, it promotes development, and it empowers individuals. Every individual is free to live as they choose, to pursue their own interests, to work in a field they want, because they're getting enough money from the government that they have the freedom to choose. No one is forced to work in a job they hate. No one is forced to abandon their art or their interests, their hobbies, because they just need to work all the time to make money. Everybody has been freed of these concerns. Now, you don't really hear a lot of advocates for any kind of social credit system today. The idea seems to have really fallen out of the political dialogue, at least in the United States. There are political parties and movements have sprung up at various times in other parts of the world, in Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom. I think the Solomon Islands still have an active political party that advocates for a social credit system. But in the United States, it's largely fallen outside of public awareness. It is well out outside the zeitgeist. However, the idea of a social credit system not too far removed from an idea that has received some fairly mainstream attention over the last few years, the idea of a UBI, a universal basic income. Now, the idea of a universal basic income, something that has been receiving academic attention lately from political scientists, economists, and something that to some degree entered the public consciousness and briefly received some mainstream support thanks to the candidacy of Andrew Yang, the entrepreneur businessman who ran for the Democratic nomination for president this past season. Yang really built his campaign on and received greater public and media attention and got a lot of support on the internet, on social media, thanks to what was really the core of his campaign, what he called the Freedom Dividend. The proposal that if he was president, he would implement a system whereby every American adult would receive $1,000 a month. And so thanks to Yang, people started talking about the idea of some kind of universal basic income. And it is, in principle, very similar to the social credit system that Heinlein advocates for. The idea that every individual receives a guaranteed minimum income to do what they want with. We keep a free market economy in place, but everybody gets guaranteed some basic standard of living from the government. And advocates of UBI, like advocates of a social credit system, will make the argument that this will 
will empower individuals, allow people to pursue their interests, to take risks on creating new businesses, will help spur the economy, keep the economy going because people have more money in their pockets, will increase demand, people will buy more stuff and that will help the economy. And that this is something that we as a society owe to each other, that everybody is entitled to a basic standard of living. Now, to be fair, these are not exactly the same things where UBI advocates will argue that this should be paid for through taxation, will tax businesses, tax the wealthy, and then redistribute that money in the form of this universal basic income. Social credit advocates say there's no need for taxation, that this is just the government printing new money as the economy grows. And further, to be fair, Andrew Yang's proposal would likely not qualify as a true UBI system. UBI advocates will generally argue that this is a guaranteed basic income. It should be enough money for a person to live a modest life on. And $1,000 a month, I think, in most parts of the United States is not nearly enough for a person to live without some kind of other support. So Yang's proposal was, I think, meant to be a more moderate policy intended to jumpstart the idea and something possibly to build on. So Yang's proposal was not quite a true UBI. And UBI is not quite a social credit system. But still, there are similarities here. And they are are all rooted in the same basic idea. We're going to empower individuals by giving everybody a guaranteed minimum standard of living. And this arguably is the most leftist proposal you're going to find from Heinlein. A policy that touches on a very socialist style system, not quite socialism. The government doesn't own the means of production. The government doesn't run the economy, but guaranteed standard of living, the government paying everybody just for being alive, comes off as very left-wing, very pro welfare state. And when taken in conjunction with the knowledge that Heinlein is writing this at a time when he's campaigning for Upton Sinclair, an outright socialist, you do take all this and say, yeah, maybe Heinlein was way more left-wing in his early days. Maybe he really did have a fundamental change of heart with regard to his political philosophy. However, I would just offer the counter-argument in a way, this does still fit within the larger core Heinlein philosophy, which I would argue consistently over the decades was empower and protect the individual and individual rights. And I would argue that is still what Heinlein is after, even all the way back in 1938. The primary positive element about the social credit system, according to Heinlein, is that it empowers individuals. This is what really comes through in For Us the Living. This isn't primarily a good system because everybody is getting money and they're happy and the government is taking care of all of us. This is primarily a good system because it makes all of us just a little bit more free. We all now, thanks to this minimum income, have the freedom to choose how we spend our lives, where we work, what we do, what interests we pursue. It makes everybody just a little more free. Individuals are just a little bit better off. And further, this system still sees a major role for the free market. This isn't true socialism. This isn't the government taking over and running the economy. Everybody takes this money and then spends it on whatever they want. People start businesses. They produce what they want. The free market decides what businesses succeed and what businesses fail, what gets produced, what stops being produced. It's all based on free market supply and demand, people spending their money on what they want. The only difference is now people have a little extra money in their pockets and people are free to take 
chances on starting new businesses, knowing that if they fail, if they produce something that it turns out there's no demand for, the public doesn't want it, the business will fail, but they still got this heritage check, this guaranteed minimum income, and they can start over and do something else. So there's still the emphasis on individual rights, individual liberty, individual choice and empowerment, and the core of economic growth is still the free market. So not quite as hardcore leftist as it may seem at first. In fact, not drifting that far from what I would argue are Heinlein's truly libertarian roots. If you look around and read what's being written about UBI, for example, you will find some hardcore free marketeers, some true ultra-libertarians who are showing some openness to the idea of UBI. Now, certainly not all. There is significant debate within the libertarian movement in the United States about whether or not UBI is a good idea. And you'll also find plenty of libertarians who are really only open to UBI as a replacement for other welfare programs and not as a good in and of itself. But still, you will find some free market people, some libertarian-leaning people who will say, yeah, maybe UBI is a good idea. In fact, even that hero of libertarians, that paragon of free market capitalism, the Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek expressed support for some kind of UBI system. So this is not completely breaking with Heinlein's later philosophy of individual liberty, individual empowerment. Now, Heinlein would ultimately seemingly drift away from his advocacy for social credit. It really doesn't come up in his later work, and there is some indication that as he got older, he was very embarrassed at his earlier leftist stage. He seemed to want to forget and bury that part of his past, not wanting to bring up the days when he campaigned for Upton Sinclair and was more open to these left-wing ideas. So there was some shift on his part, But even so, whether he knew it or not, I don't think he was as far off in his politics from where he ultimately ended up. The practical elements, social credit, variations of UBI, and so on changed. But the core philosophy of how can we best promote individual freedom and individual power over their lives, that really doesn't seem to change from For Us the Living through to Stranger in a Strange Land. That is still there. It's just abandoning some of the other elements. We go from social credit to just pure free market capitalism. And further, there are a lot of other elements in the book beyond the social credit system that come through that are very consistent with Heinlein's later philosophy and show that a lot of what he believed politically, philosophically, really did not change from the 1930s up to the later years of his life. We see For Us the Living describe an alternate future history of the United States, wherein a radical, fundamentalist, religious organization attempts to take over the country. And the current 2086 U.S. government is really born out of opposition to this radical theocracy that people try to establish in the United States. We see that coming forward from this, by the time Perry Nelson arrives in 2086, religious display is not banned, but generally very frowned upon in public. We see a society that is generally not outright hostile to, but suspicious of, and not very interested in religion. People are still free to be religious, but society as a whole isn't really interested in religion, tends to look down on it. And in fact, it's specifically mentioned in the book that in this society, 
all children are required to receive at least a couple years of purely secular education. So what we see is a suspicion of a hostility to organized religion, something that Heinlein clearly displaying in 1938 and something that will come through in even more detail in Stranger in a Strange Land in the 1960s. For us, the living also gives us a society where free love is the norm. By the end of the book, Nelson will fall in love with two different women and come to understand that that is completely acceptable and healthy. So getting over jealousy, embracing the idea that love can be shared freely, this idea, which again, will come up in far greater detail in Stranger in a Strange Land. Touching on an idea that will come up later in Starship Troopers, Heinlein describes in For Us the Living a society wherein military service or the possibility of military service is required to support going to war. Heinlein explains that in this future society, the government has passed something called the War Voting Act. And under this law, if there's a possibility of the country going to war, then everybody has to vote on it. And if you vote in favor of going to war, you are signing up to be among the first people drafted if the country does go to war and does need troops. Further, in this alternate future history, Heinlein tells us that since this law has been passed, the country has not once voted to go to war. There have been cases where it came close, but every time there was vigorous public debate, large voter turnout, and ultimately every proposal to go to war was defeated. So Heinlein, touching on the idea that military service is a good way to demonstrate your commitment to society, commitment to ideals, touching on the idea that we need to find a way to ensure that the people who vote on laws, vote on policy for a country, truly care about what is best for the country and are not just voting for what they want without thinking about the consequences. And of course, later Heinlein would tweak these ideas. Heinlein would later decide that the idea of conscription, drafting people into war no matter what is immoral and should not be allowed. So he would abandon the idea of conscription even for people who voted for war. But still, the larger theme that we should find a way to ensure that when people vote, they are truly concerned with what is best for society and not voting for something without thinking about the consequences. And for us, the living, it's, well, let's make sure that if you vote, you will suffer the consequences of your choice. You vote for war, you're going to war. In Starship Troopers, it's, we limit the electorate to those who have already committed to serving in the military or some other government job. But I would argue consistency in the general idea of what Heinlein's going after he would tweak it, he would change over time, there would be some evolution, but the core idea remains consistent. How do we hold people accountable for the political choices they make? Another piece of consistency, the emphasis on privacy, a theme that will come through in Stranger in a Strange Land, something that Heinlein clearly cared about in his personal life, also comes up in For Us the Living. He describes a society that very much venerates the idea of individual privacy. There's an interesting little piece at the very end of the book where Perry Nelson has sort of become famous after discovering himself in the future. He's got into space exploration. And at the end of the book, he's taking part in a rocket launch and there's cameras everywhere. And he wants to say farewell to his companions. And he specifically declares, hey, I want a moment of privacy. The cameras turn off, people turn away, and he gets to say his goodbyes to his loved ones without anybody recording anything, without anybody looking. Very much advocating for respect for individual privacy, another theme that will be consistent throughout Heinlein's life.
one final element, something that was really interesting in For Us the Living, Heinlein, even as he describes the society that gives the government just a little bit more control over society, over people's lives than he would later seem to be comfortable with, allowing the government to have control over children's education, having some control over the economy in the sense of giving everybody this money, still clearly interested in protecting an individual's right to choose. In the case of For Us the Living, providing the ability to opt out of the system entirely. In For Us the Living, Heinlein tells us that in this future society, there is still a government, there are still laws, but if anyone is not satisfied with this political system, if anyone doesn't want to subject themselves to this political system, to this government, to its laws, they can opt out entirely. They can go to a place called Coventry. And essentially, Coventry is sort of this walled-off piece of land somewhere in the country, sort of like, almost like a nature preserve, just this walled-off area where people aren't allowed to come or go. And if you want to opt out of this system, if you're not happy with this political system, you don't want to live here anymore, you can go to Coventry. You can go to this place, and no one really knows what happens behind those walls. No one knows what kind of society the people that have gone there have created. But you can take that chance. You can opt out of this society. You can go to this other place and build a life for yourself free of the laws of the country you're living in. What you may find on the other side, you may not like. You're not allowed to come back. But you still have that choice. So even here, Heinlein looking for a way, even if we've created a system that we think most people will like, that we think will maximize individual freedom while still having some form of government, Heinlein's still concerned with what about those people who don't like this? What about those people who don't feel free in the system, who want something else? Still giving it out for them, still looking to maximize individual choice, individual liberty. And so having said all that, at the end of the day, I'm still convinced Heinlein was fairly consistent. That's not to say he didn't change at all. He leaned a little bit more left in his early years, and after World War II, by the time the Cold War is getting underway, he's drifted a little bit more to the right. There has been some change, but overall, he was fairly consistent in his philosophy. At his core, he was always that rugged individualist iconoclast. He was always chiefly concerned with individual liberty, the right of people to live as they choose, without interference from others, without interference from the government. This was, I think, at the core of his philosophy. This combined with his desire to realize a society where people could freely embrace these values and freely choose to live with one another in a respectful community. This, I think, was consistent throughout his life, throughout his writing career. And I think a lot of his writing, what seemed to be radical deviations from his philosophy in one book or another, are in fact just his attempts to wrestle with these ideas, to figure out what is the best way to realize these goals. I don't think the goals themselves changed. The ends really didn't change. The means changed slightly over time, as Heinlein at first thought maybe the answer could be found more on the left, and later perhaps more on the right or more among the libertarian set but I don't think the core philosophy changes. And so that's my take on Heinlein. Let me know what you think. And side rant. This time, just want to talk about a couple interesting predictions Heinlein makes for the future when he wrote this book in 1938. Some predictions right, some predictions wrong. 
So for us, The Living, again, set in 2086, United States, being written by Heinlein in 1938. And it's interesting to see where Heinlein thought the world might go over the next 150 or so years. Heinlein predicts in 1938 that the U.S. would stay out of World War II. In this alternate future, Heinlein gives us... The United States never got involved in World War II. There was no Pearl Harbor. There was no event to pull us into the war. But Germany still loses. However, Heinlein's argument, Germany would ultimately lose the war because it would collapse economically. It would not be defeated militarily, but the economy would collapse. So, not quite getting World War II exactly right. Although, on the other hand, Heinlein predicting that Hitler would kill himself when he saw defeat was coming, rather than allow himself to be captured. So, got the larger pieces of World War II wrong, but he seemed to know Hitler. He got Hitler right. Yep, this guy's gonna blow his head off when he knows the game is up. Another prediction. Heinlein predicted... FDR's New Deal would largely fail. Predicted FDR would pretty much get shut down, the New Deal really wouldn't come off, and FDR would prove unelectable going forward. And he further predicted this would lead to a resurgence in right-wing government in the United States, and this would eventually lead to people getting frustrated with right-wing government, the pendulum swinging back the other way, leading to the birth of the more left-wing government that we have in 2086, according to Heinlein. So Heinlein largely getting this wrong, underestimating the political skills of FDR and what would come in the 1930s into the 1940s. Something that I love, that I find really interesting, Heinlein seems to have predicted the professional YouTuber. In the book, the first person that Perry Nelson meets makes a living beyond the money she makes from her heritage check as a dancer. She is a world-renowned dancer, and rather than traveling around the world performing on stage or whatever, she films herself and broadcasts her dancing from the comfort of her own home. She has a little film stage set up in her home. She records herself, and she has contracts with distributors around the world, and her dancing at home is broadcast around the world, and she makes money from that. So... She's still working in the traditional television system. She's still being paid by TV networks, it sounds like, in the book. Heinlein didn't come out and predict this whole YouTube thing. But the general idea that people one day in the future, thanks to broadcasting technology, recording technology, would be able to do things in their own homes and record themselves and make money doing that. Something Heinlein predicted all the way back in 1938. And flash forward to today, thanks to YouTube and all of this social media, we've kind of realized Heinlein's dream. There are people out there who can make money from the privacy of their own homes, performing for millions of people and broadcasting their performances. I suspect Heinlein would be annoyed that a lot of people now make their livings not dancing or displaying some kind of skill, but eating gross things and being kind of ridiculous. I suspect that would kind of annoy Heinlein. But I think he'd find it very cool that people can still broadcast themselves around the world and make a living doing that. In terms of technology, we get a lot of the standard sci-fi stuff of the era, stuff that will come up in later Heinlein books, the flying cars, stuff like that. One thing that I really loved, I absolutely loved this idea, I thought it was really cool, and I'd love to hear engineers explain to me why this can or can't work, but Heinlein gives us a very cool alternative system for mass public transportation in the future. Heinlein describes, the, the best way I can explain it are giant, massive, 
human conveyor belts in the future. Sort of like the conveyor belts you see at airports where you just step on and it takes you a short ways and you can just kind of rest your feet and so on. He explains the system where it, it seems like the idea is cities are kind of laid out in a very circular pattern. And so you have these conveyor belts shooting around the city, kind of bringing people around the city and back to where they start. Heinlein describes a system where cities have these basically conveyor belts like this. They can carry you around the city and the way they work is there's a series of them. Essentially, there's one going two and a half miles an hour and you can step on that one without falling and breaking your neck. But you get on that one and then you're now you're going down your path. You're going along this belt, but right next to it is another one going five miles an hour. And you can jump on that one now. And of course, because now you've acclimated to the two and a half miles an hour, you're now going that speed. Now it only feels like you're making a change of another two and a half miles an hour. And you jump on that belt. And next to that one is another one. And so on. So there's a series of these belts all moving faster and faster and faster. And as you keep, you can keep comfortably walking from one to the next and acclimating the change in speed until you're on a belt that's zipping you around the city at a hundred miles an hour. And when you get close to your destination, you jump off the hundred mile an hour one to the 95 mile an hour one and so on. And you work your way back down and you eventually jump off at your destination. I read that and I thought that was such a cool system for getting people around. No cars, no buses, just a series of conveyor belts at escalating speed. And you just work your way up. And when you get to your destination, you work your way back down. And I, of course, can see all kinds of potential problems with this. I can see stupid kids trying to leap across them from, you know, the five mile an hour one to the 30 mile an hour one. I can see people doing dumb crap on them. Of course, Heinlein assumes this future society, people are a little more civilized than that, a little more mature. But of course, I can see all kinds of problems that would come up with this. What happens when you're on that 100 mile an hour belt and something goes wrong. And again, if you're listening to this and you're an engineer or a city planner, please tell me why this can or can't work. I would love to see something like this realized someday, but I thought whether it works or not, it was a cool idea for mass transportation. So just wanted to bring that up. Just cool stuff, predictions, technology that come up in for us the living. That was my side rant. Thank you for listening. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. As always, I appreciate your support. I appreciate you listening. Please consider subscribing and reviewing. I always appreciate feedback. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. I always love to hear ideas for future episodes coming up in October, planning on doing a whole bunch of horror-themed episodes. Let me know if there's anything I should talk about. As always, you can get in touch with me on social media, Twitter, at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook, at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram, at social underscore sci underscore fi, and you can email me at socialsciencefictionshow at gmail.com. Thanks for being here. See you next week.